Welcome to the North Lakes Podcast. Thank you for listening. My name is Jeremy Oswald, and in this episode, we will be talking to behavioral health therapist Paul Workman about social anxiety, especially in kids. Here we go. Hey, I'm Paul Workman. I am a behavioral health therapist based out of Minot. I've been with North Lakes for a little over a year now. Uh, my job title is a school-based behavioral health therapist. So what that means is during the school year, um, I am at uh, school three days a week, uh, working with kiddos during the school day. And then the remaining two days of the week, I'm here working on a clinic. So while I do see people of all ages, I am predominantly and primarily working with children. And what, what age kids do you see at the school and what, what school are you in? Um, so I am seeing kindergarten through 12th grade. Um, so here in Minong, I'm actually two days a week at the Northwood School. And that is a K-12 school, so I see kids of all ages there. And then uh, on the remaining school day of the week, I go to the Hayward School, where I am at the intermediate school, which is third through fifth graders, and then the middle school, which is sixth through eighth graders. Do you have a favorite age? I don't mean to, I, don't, <laughs> I don't mean to make you biased. I know, like I think I there's there's definitely cool things about working with people of all ages. Um, so working in community mental health, um, you get to see everybody. So uh, I've experienced working with kids as young as six years old up to adults all the way into their 80s. Um, I think that there's definitely definitely something different about every single age group that makes them super cool to work with. I love the little kids because we get to play a lot. And I think because I was a little bit of an angsty teenager too, uh, something about working with teenagers just really, really hits me the right way. And that's a lot of fun too. Well, well and you must, it must be like, I, uh, I'll little full disclosure is when I was in high school, I, um, spent time, I, um, saw a behavioral health therapist. I think we called it a counselor at the time, Sure, but it was kind of neat. You kind of hit, hit the sweet spot that you're not a teacher you're not a parent. And I don't know, you kind of like, maybe they open, well, I guess it's your job for them to open up a little bit more to you. So yeah. Yeah. One of the, one of the things that I make pretty clear right away, especially with the the teenagers that I see at the school is that I don't work for the school. I work for North Lakes. The school is awesome enough to bring me in. Uh, but in terms of disciplinary stuff, all those things considered with the school, um, that's not my job. That's not my role. And I, I think that definitely helps. Nice. So I, I I could talk to you, I think, all day about talking about school-based behavioral health. But we wanted to talk a little bit, something a little bit more specific today. And that was um, social anxiety. Yeah. And let's just... Um, just start out like, what is social anxiety? So there's a couple of things we could be talking about when we're talking about social anxiety. Um, and you see this a lot where people will refer to things pretty colloquially. So social anxiety, just don't like being around people. I get nervous around people. Don't want to don't want to do that. Um, however, when we're talking about a social anxiety disorder, we are talking about something very, very specific. And the DSM-5, which is kind of the uh, the guide to all mental health disorders, um, delineates pretty clearly what social anxiety disorder looks like and how it plays out. So in order for it to be a diagnosable social anxiety disorder, there have to be a few things present. Uh, one of those things is that a fear of social situations where there's a chance of being exposed to scrutiny by others. So that could be any kind of social interaction being observed or even performing, so public speaking or doing a music recital. 
Um, they also have to fear that they're going to act in a way where or show anxiety symptoms that will be negatively evaluated by those around them. Um, social anxieties almost always have to provoke anxiety. So it's not something that is just happening one time. It has to be something that's a little bit more encompassing than that. And the way that they respond to it is either through avoidance or they have to endure the situation with intense fear or anxiety. Another component of a social anxiety disorder diagnosis is that the fear or anxiety is out of proportion to the actual threat posed. It has to be persistent, so it has to be going on for more than six months. Um, Additionally, like most mental health disorders that we diagnose, um, the fear, anxiety, or avoidance has to cause clinical significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or otherwise important areas of functioning. Uh, So that's just a fancy way of saying that it has to interfere with your life and make it hard for you to do the things that you need to be doing. So for a third grader, their job right now is to be a student. Their job right now is to be a friend. And if their anxiety is presenting in such a way that it significantly impairs their ability to do so, then we might be moving more towards the direction of a formal social anxiety uh, disorder diagnosis. However, um, you can certainly see different traits of social anxiety that come up. So I think when we talk about social anxiety in a lot of ways, we could either be talking about the specific disorder with the diagnostic criteria or traits that are often associated with a disorder. Uh, Additionally, for a diagnosis of social anxiety disorder, um, the symptoms cannot be attributable to the physiological effects of a substance or another medical condition and it can't be better explained by the symptoms of another mental health disorder so like a panic disorder a body dysmorphic disorder an autism spectrum disorder so that's kind of like from a provider level how we rule out to see okay are we talking about social anxiety generally or are we talking about social anxiety disorder specifically and can it be um like for for specific um, situations like I don't like recess because X, Y, Z, like I'm fine everywhere else or, um, you know, like you mentioned performance like Sure, have been somebody that's been on the stage. That's terrible. Like that first half hour before the, you know, like the, the doors have opened and you're waiting to go on. It's the worst feeling in the world, but I don't ever have that feeling anywhere else. And I don't, I'm not trying to make this about me, but I'm just, is it specific to certain situations or do you need to kind of see it like in several spots where you're like, wow, let's, let's work with this. So typically what we'd be looking at again is a, a significant impairment. I think getting a little bit nervous before you have to speak publicly or nervous before you have to do a recital. These are totally normal human experiences. Um, very few people can go up there. Uh, maybe it's the extro- extroverts in the world, maybe, but uh, very few people can go out there and um, perform in certain ways that don't have any kind of anxiety associated to it. So this might be a good time to clarify that anxiety isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, that anxiety, a lot of the time, is a very useful thing to have. Uh, but when we talk about disordered anxiety, we're talking about anxiety, again, that is out of proportion to the severity of what actually might happen. Um, that's persistent and also interferes with functioning. So if I get anxious about paying my power bill on time, this is a totally normal thing because I need my power bill for my house to work properly. I need my power bill for all these things. So having a little bit of anxiety can help motivate us, can help us live the kinds of lives that we want. 
But when we're talking about uh, clinical impairment, we're talking about extremes that lead to people not being able to do the things that they need to do. And it's somebody like it's so bad they can't eat, they can't sleep, they're not able to. In, in some cases, in some cases, um, in a lot of other cases, especially when it comes to uh, seeing it in the classroom or seeing it at school, I think we're talking about children primarily here. Um, difficulty focusing on the content that's being presented, difficulty interacting with their peers, uh, fear of being negatively apprised by their peers, fear of being judged. So a lot of that can get in the way of their ability to function in the classroom, their ability to participate as students, and in some cases, too, their ability to participate as friends. One of the interesting things, too, about the social anxiety diagnosis is that when it is diagnosed in children, um, you also have to see it um, apply to peer relationships, too. So it can't be with just adults. Mm. So they're having troubles with the other kids in the class. Or sure. not, not troubles. Not necessarily troubles, troubles, but, but like but fear of how the other kids in the class will view them. Sure, sure. And um, so who is there a is there a, a typical kind of kid that this affects or who, who does it affect? So I was actually researching this before we came up to meet here. And one of the interesting things I found out is that um, it can affect basically everybody. Uh, but the uh, prevalence rates in children under the age of 12 are pretty low. Uh, typically, you start to see it peaking out more during adolescence. Uh, I mean, you alluded to your time in high school. I mean, I think high school is a pretty rough time for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's when a lot of those things can, can appear, interaction with other students, interaction uh, with staff, uh, fears of anxiety. Um, so yeah, while, while you can see it in younger kids, typically it, it starts to appear more into adolescence. And so it's something um, you see it a lot in the school. Um, I see social anxiety traits for sure. Trait, okay. Uh, like we talked about the distinction between uh, the specific disorder uh, versus some of those traits. Got it. Um, so... What so if you're experiencing this, what are some behaviors can it bring about? Are there like is it? I don't know. Can it? Is that a simple enough question? Or, sure. No, yeah. that, that's a, that's a good question. Um, and I think it's interesting that you went on behaviors because when we talk about how social anxiety. Um, presents, we're really looking at three different realms primarily. So behaviors are for sure one of them, like you mentioned, but we're also looking at physiological presentations and then cognitive presentations. Um, so we can just go through them really quickly here. So oh, like yeah, the yeah. physiological yeah. presentation would be um, body feelings, the way it feels in your body. So when you see social anxiety uh, disorder or traits in children, a lot of times it presents physiologically. So talking about uh, autonomic arousal in social situations. So heart rate is increasing, heart's beating faster, there's sweating, there's flushing, there's nausea, abdominal problems, muscle tension. So this is a physiological realm that social anxiety can manifest itself. And then behavior, like you were talking about, uh, you see it a lot of the time as avoidance behaviors or irritability, angry outbursts, crying, clinginess to the parents or overcautiousness. And then cognitively, uh, one of the realms where social anxiety will also manifest is um, 
they may have concerns about social evaluation and they're likely to interpret social situations in a more threatening manner. So, so kind of this trifecta, these three different realms of physiological, behavioral, and cognitive are all different ways in which social anxiety can present itself. And so, so how, do, who, like what causes it? Do you know, like, like why, like, you know, you said it could affect anybody that, you know, it's usually after 12, but like what, any idea, like what brings it about? So that's a really, really tough, complicated question, especially when you're talking about like the etiology of mental health disorders. So what brings them about? Where do they come from? Um, and I figured you were the one to ask. <laughs> I, 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 and you. <laughs> well, it's, it's yeah, it is. It is very complicated. So for one, we really can't we can't study specifically what a causal relationship looks like because that's super unethical because we'd be going out and giving children or trying to give children social anxiety disorder on purpose. And that's a huge no, no. Right. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the times we just have to look at studies um, and research to see kind of what different components can be in place where we can have predictors or what what things are typically associated with social anxiety so we can kind of see what's going on. And a lot of the things that are in place are um, genetic components or like a family component. So we know with most anxiety disorders that if other people in your family have it, you're more likely to have it. So there's definitely a genetic component, uh, but there's a huge environmental component as well. So a way that I like to look at it is that a lot of the time people can have a like a quote unquote genetic predisposition for things, uh, but the environment exists and turns those genes on or turns those things on. So just because you may have a family history of a disorder doesn't mean that you are for sure going to get it. And just because you don't have a family history of a disorder uh, doesn't mean that you won't get it either. Uh, so there's certainly some stuff at play um, with the environmental stuff or the environmental concerns. Uh, children who get bullied have higher levels of social anxiety disorder or if they get teased. Um, I mean, and that's I think a pretty <laughs> understandable thing, right? So if, if it is about fear of negative evaluation for other people, if you are constantly being teased by your peers, yeah, you're going to start to realize that there might be something to be afraid of or there might be something to be anxious about. Yeah, that that's a pretty real thing. I mean, yeah. And then, and then on top of that, you can add just basic temperament as well. Uh, children who are typically more shy will also lean more in that direction or a higher behavioral inhibition, um, more kind of closed in quieter kids uh, could lead to this. Now, whether or not it's a causal factor, I, you know, we can't say specifically, uh, but just looking at some of the other correlations in place to see what these predictors might be. Mm -hmm. And the, God, this is just, uh, you know, we all, somebody must've liked high school. <laughs> But I mean, what are our, our, our school? I, I guess I, I don't know. I, I remember when I was in high school, um, th there were some some people out there who would be like, you know, Paul, you better you better enjoy this while you have it, because high school is going to be the best time of your life. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, boy, I sure hope not. Goes downhill from here, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, but like, it's um, is there something unique or different that about? people that are in school that this makes it a little more is it different is it different in kids than it is in adults like I guess I'm like what what how being in school having we've all gone through it how's it a little different than there than maybe like an adult would be experiencing it so a lot of the adults who 
come in and discuss issues related to social anxiety, they'll often say, boy, I feel like I've been this way my whole life, or I feel like this has been something that's been going on my entire life. Um, the way it presents to children in school can be very different as well. Uh, with the younger kids who aren't as connected with their internal world, say as like an adolescent or something like that, you're going to see a lot more of the physiological symptoms, a lot more of the body symptoms. They might not be able to articulate, I'm afraid that they're going to think bad things about me. It may present itself as, you know, if I have to do this, I suddenly get a tummy ache or I don't want to do it. And you're going to see um, some of the avoidance playing out differently in younger children. So more in the form of crying, temper tantrums, uh, more, I guess, age appropriate or age expected responses. Once people start getting older uh, into adolescence, they're able to articulate a lot of that stuff better. And that's when you start seeing a lot more of the um, the expressions of worrying about how other people are going to feel about you. With that being said, um, developmentally too, when you're an adolescent, one of the most important things is fitting in. So, I mean, I guess it would make sense that you would start to see some of these presentations happening in adolescence a little bit differently because an adolescent's job is to go to school and all this kind of thing. But an adolescent's job is also to learn how to fit in and to learn how to kind of get along with the crowd and do, you know, all those kinds of things that adolescents have to do. Um, so I think in different stages of life, you see it presenting a little bit differently, but the core underlying thing is other people are going to look at me. Other people are going to think blank about me and I don't like the way that feels. So I'm either going to figure out ways to prevent that from happening or I'm going to avoid it altogether. Mm. And um, so how are you able to treat this? How do you help these school age kids out when they come to you? Sure. So the <laughs> the research says that the that CBT, which is cognitive behavioral therapy, is the frontline intervention for how to treat social anxiety disorder. And really, there's something called um, like an anxiety circle or an anxiety loop. And basically how it works is you are exposed to an anxiety provoking situation. So you start to feel these feelings of anxiety. You start to feel the body things right away. So the upset tummy, the nausea, the increased heart rate, the flushing skin, all that kind of stuff. You start to feel these physical sensations right away. And that immediately keys your body and says that you need to be an alert and you need to be looking out for threats. You need to be figuring out what's going on and you need to attend to that. So then what ends up happening is you engage in things to get short term relief. So a lot of the time that can be avoidance from the anxiety provoking situation. And you do get that short term relief. Right. So if you're scared of public speaking or if you're scared of performing a piano recital or if you're scared of going on a podcast for your job, you can avoid it. Right. And then you get that relief and it doesn't hit you. But then there's the long term consequences of it. So you get the short term relief, but then there's the long term consequences. And a lot of those consequences are difficult because or can, can pose problems, as I guess consequences do. Um, it reinforces the avoidance. It reinforces whatever compensation that you were using um, and makes you more likely to do it in the future. So if every time you had to do public speaking, you called in sick or you found an excuse not to do it, you would get relief from the anxiety, but there would be the long-term consequences of not doing what you need to be doing. Um, so 
Sorry, I was just kind of explaining that model to no. This is yeah. This is talking about interventions. So, Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to helping out kids, um, the big things to do are some social skills training. So how do you talk to people? How do you have interactions with people? And of course, this is all dependent on how the social anxiety disorder or the social anxiety presents itself. Um, but a lot of times practicing in session, how do you make friends? How do you talk to people? How do you introduce yourself? How do you ask to be included? How do you include others? How do you do the basic things in order to do what you need to do? Um, Another thing that is very helpful is called uh, graduated exposure. So really what that is, is that is retraining that loop that I just talked about. So it is finding things that provoke anxiety, but not too much, but also not too little because it needs to be enough to um, reprogram what you're doing so that those long-term lessons get learned differently. So an example, an example of that would be if you are a kiddo and you're having trouble interacting with peers at recess and you're afraid that people are going to make fun of you or laugh at you, um, we're not going to start off by practicing the introducing yourself and, hey, do you want to play this? Because that's a big anxiety provoking situation. That's really big. So we may start off smaller with, okay, you need to say goodbye at the end of the day to two of the people in your classroom and you start practicing small. And what that teaches you is that, hey, I can do something that causes ang- that, that would normally cause me anxiety. I can overcome this and I can get relief from the anxiety, not by avoiding saying goodbye, but I can get relief from the anxiety by saying goodbye. And then the long term lesson is, hey, it's actually OK to say goodbye to people. So you start small small baby steps ladders and eventually you can move up to you know more difficult things but again uh somebody with social anxiety you're not going to say okay your homework for this week is to go out and give a speech to 300 people uh yeah right uh, that's, <laughs> hope you do that's, okay that's good luck. not gonna fly mm-hmm. that's not gonna fly at all so again you have to start it small and move your way up there you know baby steps uh to help retrain that cycle um And help your body and your brain understand that, yeah, while this is a little bit scary, while this could induce some of those feelings, it's going to be safe and it's going to be okay to do. Um, So, again, baby steps leading up to that. Um, Another good treatment option is something called cognitive restructuring, which is basically changing the way that you think about stuff. So... A lot of times, when I guess when we were talking earlier about the, the three different uh, realms in which social anxiety shows itself, we talked about the cognitive stuff. So the cognitive portion is if I am in this situation, then X, Y, and Z are going to happen. And this is really, really, really bad. And this is why I need to avoid the situation. So the cognitive restructuring is being like, okay, are X, Y, and Z really going to happen? You know, what are the probability of, uh, probabilities of X, Y, and Z happening? What would it look like? What are the other options that could happen? What are ways that we can avoid going to this automatic catastrophic thinking? Because the, that automatic catastrophic thinking automatically fuels 
anxiety because you and I aren't scared of going in front of 300 people and speaking because we think that two people are going to think we look silly. We're scared of doing it in front of 300 people because we think that all 300 of them are going to think we're an idiot and that they hate us. So again, it is challenging those extremes. Yeah. Some people might think that I'm goofy up there, but that's okay. But what about the other people that are going to love it? Exactly. See, (laughs) Hey, you can do this too. Mm -hmm. A little bit of cognitive restructuring on your own. And I'll just say, Paul, you're doing a great job at this podcast. Well, right hey, thank I'm you. having a really good time and I'm glad you're here. <laughs> I'm enjoying myself too. Okay, good. And then another way we can help treat uh, social anxiety is uh, in children is going to, I guess adults too, yeah, going to that physiological component. So figuring out uh, that autonomic nervous system activation. So that increased heart rate, that flushing skin, that upset tummy, all these things are natural systems that exist in our body to protect us, right? So our blood need or our heart needs to push blood faster through our veins to make sure our muscles are strong enough and activated enough to fight things off because this is what our body is programmed to do in the presence of a threat. So there can be a lot of training for mindfulness or different ways to calm down your body to bring your body out of that elevated physiological state, because that elevated physiological state can affect the way you think about the anxiety, too. Because if you oh, you might like this. Have you ever woken up from a nightmare and you're sitting in bed and you're still super tense and you're still super frightened and you're sitting in bed. Yeah. You're not in good, good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> yes. I, yes. That has happened to me. Yes. Okay. And you're sitting in bed and you feel profoundly uneasy in bed and you can sit there and you'd be like, wow, this was a dream. This was a wild dream. That was crazy. And even though intellectually, cognitively, you know that what you just experienced was a crazy dream that isn't actually happening. Um, your body doesn't. Your body's still got all those stress hormones going through it. Your body is still activated. Your body is still agitated. So even though intellectually, even though cognitively, you can be like, there is no threat. Your body's going to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a second, though. I'm activated right now. There has to be a reason why. So treating some of the physiological symptoms of anxiety, too, can be really, really, really helpful because, you know, you can't just talk your way out of everything. It's about bringing your body down, too, because when your body feels good, your brain's going to be able to follow. So you need to. Um, so how do you do that? Like you just like I, you said, mindfulness, that was one yeah, thing, mindfulness, but- a lot of intentionality, slowing down. Uh, deep breathing is a really good one. One of the things I like to do with kids um, especially because kids aren't super excited about sitting in a chair and slowly breathing in for four seconds, holding it, slowly breathing out for four seconds. That's not something they want to do. So what I found works really well with kids is bubbles. Yeah. Bubbles. Yeah. Uh-huh. Remember like you got the little plastic wand and you blow the bubbles out. I have some right here. <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> but what you can do is um, turn it into a game. How big of a bubble can you blow right now? And what are a few things you need to do in order to blow a big bubble? You need to slow down. You need to have a lot of air in your lungs to fill up the bubble. And you have to exhale slowly. If you blow out into the bubble too fast, it's going to pop. So you have to have just the right rate of breathing to fill up the bubble. So um, I love that. That's just like I and then even if you don't have the bubbles with you, you can be thinking about exactly, how you do it. Oh, exactly. Sorry, I didn't mean to steal. No, 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 it's there. all good. It's all good. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a really great way to do it, too, to help 
slow down, help calm the body. Uh, another thing is progressive muscle relaxation, which is really going through different muscle groups in your body uh, from your toes all the way up to your temples and flexing and holding those different muscle groups at once as tight as you can and then letting it relax. Um, and this can help you calm down. This can help your body feel like it's less in that threat state. And then another good thing too, is just grounding exercises too. So where am I right now? Um, I like to do like a five senses, five things. So engaging with your five senses and finding a few things for each sense in the room that you didn't notice before. And this can really force you to get out of your head, get out of that agitated, get out of that activated state and be more in the present and the present at least I hope so, in uh, the therapy room is a safe space. Mm. So bringing your body back into a safer room, a safer area, a safer space. Uh, and those are all different ways you can physiologically address those those symptoms of anxiety. Oh, wow. I feel better already just even like having you, the bubble thing. I'm, I'm, that's, I'm keeping that one. Um, and this... This is an even deeper question, Paul, and you can yeah. like tell me like that's for another podcast, but I'm, you know, the kids don't walk into your, um, your room, like with a sign that says, hi, I have social anxiety, right. but I'm just like, and you don't necessarily need to explain it, or maybe there's an easy way to, but I'm just like admiring, like, wow, how did they figure that out? Like, I mean, your job to like try and, um, determine what is troubling children. That must be a, an interesting challenge. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that with children, especially it's, it's different because, um, you know, in, in doing a, a diagnostic assessment and doing an interview, um, you're talking to, you know, the presenting patient, the client, uh, about what their experiences are in their life. But when children with children, especially it's parents bringing them in and saying, this is what I'm seeing. This is what's going on here, 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 here. This is what's wrong. Uh, and a lot of times uh, the kid will have, especially as they get older, <laughs> the kid will have their own interpretation of things. And, you know, there's reports from teachers, the school guidance counselor, and collecting all different kinds of collateral information to help kind of put together a picture of what's going on in the kiddo's life. And... Um, you know, the, the purpose of of diagnosing, you know, specifically is to inform the treatment because, you know, the better idea of, of what you have going on in front of you, the better idea of what you know what you do. Uh, if you're lost in the woods and you have a map, the first thing you want to do is figure out where you are. And then once you figure out where you are, then you need to know, then you can know where to go. <laughs> but until you know where you are, you don't know exactly what to do. Um, and you can get all kinds of, of good information from the kids and the parents and, and the teachers and all that kind of stuff. And um, how do, is that? You kind of just listed a few ways that you might come in contact with a student, a kid, a client. Mm -hmm. um, is that how it usually happens that the you must work closely with the school? They know that you're there. And then how does a kid end up in your oh, in sure. your room? Yeah. OK. Um, so we are a clinic. So we are a medical provider. I am a 
service provider here uh, at the clinic. So we do have a formal referral process uh, and there are many different ways to get to me. Uh, it doesn't always have to be the same way every time, um, but typically it'll either be parents bringing in their kids uh, to see me at the clinic. And then we're like, oh, hey, I'm at such and such a school. Why don't you see me there? Um, or uh, quite often what will happen to is working with the staff at the school um, Shout out to my guidance counselors at the schools I'm at. You guys are awesome. Uh, they'll give me referrals. Uh, so they'll have a student that's been on their radar. Um, typically, by the time they get to meeting with me, they've gone through a lot of other options at the school. Um, you know, and the the school guidance counselor or staff there have said, hey, maybe maybe counseling would be a good thing. A good thing for this kid. So I'll get a referral form from the school and then the clinic will reach out to the parents and we'll get the ball moving. Got it. All right. So back to our topic at hand. Sure. Um, so a couple things like what can it do to a kid's overall health and you maybe tie it in with what if it goes untreated? Sure. I don't know if that's the same thing, but, uh, you know, if they, if they, if they, uh, and I'm, I'm guessing, cause it sounds like when you see somebody that's an adult, they're like, I've had this my whole life. They just didn't have someone like you when you were in, when they were in school. Sure. So there are high rates of comorbidities with depression. So people with social anxiety, social anxiety disorder are, uh, also likely to feel depressed, um, feeling anxious all the time being activated all the time, um, having that autonomic nervous system pumped up all the time is not good for you. Um, you know, every time that I go to the doctor, they tell me I need to work on figuring out ways to be less stressed out. So I can imagine that people with uh, high levels of anxiety will also have some of those health issues associated with it. Um, also, it's really interesting. Um, probably more tragic than interesting is that uh, people who have social anxiety in adolescence and childhood, if it goes untreated, often have higher rates of uh, anxiety as adults, have higher rates of substance use disorders. Um, because again, that's that, uh, that anxiety cycle that we talked about where you get the anxiety provoking stimulus. You have the compensation to avoid this, the anxiety. You get that short term relief, but then there's longer term consequences. These can play out in a lot of different ways. Um, and I, I see a lot of it uh, playing out in avoidance behaviors. So not engaging with the world in the way that they might, you know, otherwise like to. And any other, I mean, you just listed a couple, but there are any other conditions that are common that accompany social anxiety disorder? Oh, no, just primarily the ones I talked okay. about. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I figured. Um, uh, so what, and have you seen a change? Like what did the pandemic do? Was it like, is there an AC or a BCAD with that? Is like, was it much better or, or have you seen more since the pandemic or no association at all? So the pandemic has made um, the prevalence of mental health disorders uh, and symptoms increase quite a bit. Um, a lot of isolation, a lot of fear, a lot of uncertainty. Um, and again, doing this, not being as connected with other people, of course, is going to is going to lead to problems. Um, I was reading a study, uh, I think, out of Australia, uh, and this is social anxiety in adults. Um, 
their rates of social anxiety disorder increased pretty significantly over the last three years. Now, whether or not we can say the pandemic caused this or that this upward trend happened around the same time as the pandemic, you know, who's to know for sure? I think maybe we'll see some more research about how that you know, played out later on. Cause again, this is still, this still is still pretty recent, but anecdotally, I know that being isolated, um, living in fear, living in uncertainty certainly has exacerbated and aggravated uh, a lot of mental health issues and conditions in people. Well, I mean, without like, you know, I'm an adult, so I'm pretty set in my life, but if you're a, you know, a whatever age kid and there were those two or three years that you like missed out on social interaction, I mean, a lot of it is learned, right? I mean, oh, yeah. You learn yeah it. So if sure. you didn't have it and then all of a sudden you're back in, it, it's like, it's got to be a little shock to the system, I would think. Yeah. And, you know, one of the major benefits of school is being able to be around kids your age. So uh, learning how to interact with people, learning how to talk to people, learning how to negotiate all different kinds of situations. This is, and don't get me wrong, academics are important too, uh, but this is one of the big benefits. <laughs> this is one of the big benefits. Uh, and the learning. Yes, the learning. The learning too, yeah. yes, yeah. I guess. Um, but being able to be a student and interact with your peers, and if, if all of a sudden that kind of stuff shuts off um, or changes how it presents, you know, you're going to have problems or you're going to have difficulties at the very least. And, you know, anecdotally, I've seen, um, you know, some kind of stuff related to that for sure. And, um, in your opinion is the, like, uh, I think the way, so full disclosure, Paul and I worked on some of these questions before the podcast (laughs) and I'll just read, uh, this is number 16. Um, are our digital lives a factor? How? Oh boy. You get me going for a while. Okay. Of well. course they are. Of course they are. Um, so when we're talking about social anxiety, the the primary thing is that fear of negative evaluation from other people. So when we're looking at social media, a good amount of social media is about fishing for those positive reactions from people. It's about fishing for likes. It's about fishing for shares. Um, It's about, in a lot of ways, presenting your life uh, in in an accurate-ish way, but presenting the best part of your life, presenting your highlight reel to the world. You know, I'm here on this earth 24 hours a day, uh, and I don't really post on social media, but, you know, if I did, you'd be getting 30-second increments of the best parts of those 24 hours typically. Um, and, and I think that social media can lead to, uh, issues related to self-esteem, uh, especially in teenagers. Uh, you know, most little kids aren't on social media, I guess, uh, most social media platforms do have in their EULA that you need to be 13 or older to use them too anyway. So let's just talk about adolescence here. You know, people present an idealized version or an idyllic version of what their life looks like or what they think it should look like. And when you are constantly surrounded by this uh, in your peer group or whoever you happen to be connected on social media, you can get stuck in this idea of, well, I don't know if I really measure up to that. 
you know, cause you're there for 24 hours of your life and you get to see all the, the warty parts of your life, all the unfun parts of your life that typically aren't presented on social media. Um, so I think that social media can have an amplifying effect in the way that it, um, unfairly or maybe disproportionately represent some of the good things. Cause most of the time people are going on social media and trying to show the good stuff probably more so than the, the bad stuff and, and the struggles. And I, and I should, I should say that I am painting with a pretty wide brush here and that there are people that for sure engage with social media, you know, with honesty and sincerity. Uh, but in a lot of ways too, you can see some of these, I don't know, unfair representations, let's say, or inaccurate. Um, I know that in meeting with a lot of adolescents, for sure, um, Snapchat, parts of Snapchat can be difficult uh, for them to navigate because you've got your Snap score, which keeps track of how many people you're messaging, how many people you're engaging with. And that's always kind of this number that goes there. You've got Snapchat streaks that you have to maintain with people. They have it built into this thing where they let you know who you're messaging the most. And then it also tells you whether or not they're messaging you the most. So there can be. I def- didn't even. Know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Jeez. Uh-huh. So, so, you can so it's have- a contest. Kind of kind of like a contest, but you can also, you know, you can have situations where you might be really, really excited about messaging somebody and then finding out that you're messaging them the most, but they're not messaging you the most. And then it can feel like, oh, my gosh, what's wrong with me? What's going on? Um, oh, man. So while Snapchat <laughs> is super cool to connect with people and, you know, Snap stories can be fun and everybody can have a good time. Um, there's certainly things that are anxiety provoking. One of the common themes that comes up with a lot of teenagers I work with is the being left undelivered or being left unread, where you send a message to somebody and then they either read it and don't respond or it just sits unread in their inbox until um until they decide that they want to read it. And of course, because of some of that catastrophic thinking you and I were talking about earlier, um, it's not, well, you know, this person that I messaged didn't respond because they were out to dinner with their family and they didn't want to pull out their phone. It is, they didn't respond because they hate me. Right. Well, and then I'm like, if you're at school and you're doing it at school, you're like, then you see that person, Mm-hmm. You know, like, and you're like, well, I don't want to talk to them until they like read my message. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So there Just can like, be like, yeah, there, there can be a lot of ways, um, for stress and anxiety to play out. And, and I don't know necessarily if Snapchat itself is causing this. I think that it, um, it certainly presents new ways for people to feel anxious Let's say I know when I was new ways. when I was yeah new ways to be like when I was in high school, um, and here I am a millennial. We you know had our family computer or whatever, and I used AOL Instant Messenger to talk to my friends uh, after school and in the evenings, and I could only connect to my computer when the phone line was free to connect to the computer. Um, and I would be talking to them, and if I was available to respond. I would have my uh, AOL instant messenger profile up. And as soon as I logged off, I disappeared. So this was kind of the extent of my engagement with technology back God, 20 years ago now. Ooh. Um, and things Let's have not make this a contest. <laughs> <laughs> things, things have changed a lot, a lot since then, because while certainly my generation growing up, we had, you know, 
quicker ways of accessing each other than the generation before the generation now is there's a little device that lives in our pocket where we have 24 seven access to people. Um, and that can bring up a lot of new things to be anxious about. Uh, if I called one of my friends on the landline phone, uh, back when I was in middle school and, you know, I left a message with their mom to have them please call me back. If I didn't hear back from them for a day or two, that was normal because, oh, they're busy. They got to wait for the phone to be free, blah, 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 blah. No big deal. It happens. Um, you know, nowadays you send a message and you don't get a reply back in 20 minutes, a half hour. Those gears start turning and it's like, oh, my God, what did I do wrong? Did they get it? Did Why are they writing me back? Exactly, What's going on? Exactly. Yeah. So it just kind of has like amplified the cycle. Sure. 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 Yeah, it can, it can make it, it gives I think it gives people new ways, like I said, to uh, to present ourselves. And, you know, I think now we're getting more towards the realm of just general anxiety, more so than social anxiety necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things I'm seeing, too, is that there are a lot of apps out there that you can use on your phone um, to change your appearance to change the way you look. And I'm not talking about like those crazy ones that turn into a dog or a lizard or something, but the ones that have the subtle changes, the minor changes, the, the face touch up, right? So we're going to smooth out the skin a little bit. We're going to get rid of these blemishes. And then suddenly everybody's using this. It's not announcing who's using this. Everybody's got perfectly smooth, blemish-free skin. Why don't I? What's wrong with me? Um, which, which I think can lead to problems. Of course, this is combated by seeing people in real life in person too. But, uh, you know, social media, I think kids are living a lot of a huge chunk of their lives on it. Oh, right. Well, and like, I'm afraid to go out in the world because I changed my appearance the way I look here and I don't really look that way. So I'm even, I don't want to go out in oh, the world. Oh, you're good at inventing new problems, aren't you? Sorry, I don't mean to. I'm just like, it. like the wheels are turning here, Paul. So yeah, yeah. The way, the way that I can, the way that I can present myself, I have a little bit more control over that yeah. on social media than I necessarily would uh, in public. Huh. Okay. Um, it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, like, like in so many ways, this digital age, like we don't really know like a lot of these long-term effects yet. Right. Right. And I don't want to throw out a huge indictment necessarily against social media at all. Right. I I think I'm going to try to be as agnostic or morally neutral about it as I can, because, you know, there are certainly, um, benefits to this crazy amount of technology. Like now we're shifting into an age of where the skill isn't going to be what you know. The new skill is going to be able to how to quickly find out what you should know, Hmm. uh, how to access technology, how to access information. It's not necessarily about the information itself, but how to get there. Uh, I mean, I'm seeing that now Um, stuck going around in my house that I need to work on, need to fix. I don't have to dig around and find the Reader's Digest Homeowner's Guide from 1989 to figure out how to do it. I can go on YouTube and cycle through half a dozen videos until I find one that looks close enough to the problem I'm having and watch some nice person explain to me how to fix my problem. It's crazy. It's awesome. I fixed the starter in my car. 
No kidding. I replaced it. And I was like, without YouTube, it never would have happened. Awesome. So yeah, yeah I mean, we all, hopefully we all have those stories. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And there's, there's, there's definitely good stuff here. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, like, I mean, it, it's, it's, um, we could talk that this could be a whole nother podcast about right. like the, so I'm just going to move on a little bit, but that's, sure. that's, unless there's anything else oh, no, no, about no, no, that. No. Go ahead. Um, so my other thing, like, so what do, um, how can parents, you know, maybe recognize it? Are there things that parents can do to help their kids with it? With sure. So when it comes to uh, recognizing it for those younger kids, usually about 12 or younger, uh, like I said before, typically of those three realms I talked about where it's going to show itself, it's going to see mostly, you're going to mostly see the the child complaining about physiological issues. So like the somatic complaints, complaints about how they're feeling in their body. I don't want to do this. I have a tummy ache. It feels bad. Um, and then you couple that with a lot of the avoidance stuff. So refusing to participate, refusing to go, dragging their feet, kicking it. Um, I don't want to go to school today. I'm not really feeling well. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That, that could certainly Certainly, that could certainly be describing what we're talking about. It could also be describing a bunch of other things, too. Sure, sure. Uh, but, sure, sure. you know, and a lot of times when parents are coming and talking about stuff like this, um, the way it parses out in their day to day life. So if you've got a kid who's constantly complaining about a tummy ache, constantly not wanting to do things, a way that somebody could read this, especially after being frustrated and worn down, is I'm bringing my kid in because they're always making up being sick about stuff and they don't want to do anything. And I'm bringing my kid in because they are being naughty. Hmm. And that's not necessarily the case. Right. Uh, what may look like naughtiness, what may look like obstinate behavior is, in fact, that avoidance behavior to try to bring around that short term relief from anxiety. Uh, so a lot of times, you know, it's, it's important to stress the idea that, OK, what you may be seeing in your kid is frustrating. It may feel like defiance. It may feel like disrespect. But the kid is using the best language tools that they have and the best tools that they have available to try to solve the problem which is bringing on that, wanting to try to bring on that short-term comfort. So again, the purpose of counseling, the purpose of therapy is to help, number one, figure out what's going on. So look in the woods, see where we are in the map, where to go, and then uh, figure out better ways of handling uh, these distressing or anxiety-provoking situations that don't necessarily have, you know, those those troublesome long-term consequences. Uh, so in terms of, you know, with the younger kids, uh, look out for those temper tantrums. Look out for that. My tummy hurts. I don't want to do this. Um, with older kids, uh, teenagers, a lot of withdrawn behavior, a lot of isolation, uh, a lot of kind of slow one word answers, not necessarily wanting to engage with uh, conversations about it. Because, again, if one of the hallmarks of social anxiety is fear of people viewing you poorly, if you start suddenly saying, hey, you know, I'm really scared of everything or I'm really scared of going to school. I'm really da, da, da. There's that that risk that the person you're sharing it with might judge you or might look upon you poorly. So uh, it can be difficult to suss out necessarily what's going on right away, because in this case, um, a lot of the symptoms can be treatment interfering. Um, and this has been this is just so I, I love all this. Um, so are there. um 
what's it like in the school? Do they, um, did this, does the school do anything to help with this? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, and I don't mean individual, like, you, you know, I don't think that you go and say like, Hey, student X is doing this. That's not what I mean. But right, I mean, right, in right. general, right. Our so schools, of, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I've seen a lot of, um, and this isn't something that I had in high school, um, so like presentations, live presentations for the class. So you're going to put together a PowerPoint, you're going to put together whatever, um, present the topic to your class. Something that I've seen a handful of teachers doing, which I think is awesome, is they give the students or the students groups options of either presenting live or recording it hmm. and then showing a video to the class. Um, this is great. I think this is super cool. This allows kids to share the information uh, without necessarily being on the spot. Um one of the ways that I've seen kind of an example, um, and I don't remember when you were in school, did you guys ever do popcorn reading hmm. where you'd have like a passage from the book that you needed to read and it would go, you know, person A reads one paragraph and then they move next in line to the next person to read the second paragraph out loud and then the third paragraph out loud. Did you ever do that in your classroom? No, I volunteered. They were did like, you? would anyone like to read? And, <laughs> uh, and then I can remember one teacher saying like, you know, it might be easier to understand if you didn't do the voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I clear I, memory, yeah, clear memory. I've, I've had some students, kids reporting that like they will see the impending line of it's going to be my turn in three paragraphs and they will go ahead in the reading. And then we'll find the paragraph that they need to read. And because they don't want to mess up any words, because they don't want to be surprised, because they don't want to screw up how it's coming out, they will be reviewing their paragraph ahead of time while the other kids ahead of them are reading theirs out loud. So what ends up happening is that the kid who was reviewing their paragraph, who was really anxious, really nervous about sharing this in class or, you know, being called on to read, uh, they're not paying attention to the other paragraphs being read before theirs, they're only making sure that they can avoid surprises, that they can help get that short-term anxiety relief. And again, the long-term consequence of this is they don't know the material that was ahead of them. Um, so I've seen a lot of like the popcorn reading disappearing in classrooms, hmm. uh, which is really good. Being called on the spot uh, can be really, really harmful or difficult for kids with anxiety. Uh, another thing is group projects. Um, picking a group versus being assigned a group. Uh, somebody, a student with a lot of social anxiety, if they're being told that they have to pick a group, they're going to, nope, nope, yeah. not want to do that. Uh, you're shaking your head. Yeah, that, that would be tough. Mm -hmm. um, so that's not to say that students should never have to, right? Um, because again, being able to pick a group and being able to interact with people and engage with people is an important skill to have as an adult, uh, being able to go up to somebody and say, Hey, I'm Paul. This is what I do. This is what I'm here for. You know, um, th these are all skills that need to be developed, but I think that there are teachers out there who are finding a good balance between putting kids on the spot and terrorizing them and traumatizing them. Um, and then also making sure nobody's feeling like the, the spotlights on them if they don't want it. Sure. And so just another thought that kind of yeah. ran into my head here and I haven't been in school in a long time, but I mean, some kids are mean, yeah. you know, like, I mean, so like, 
I'm not like you were saying, like there are bullies out there. And like, I mean, yeah, I bullying, can like the that, bullying for sure can can lead to people developing uh, more issues related to anxiety or social anxiety. But, but I mean, like even like when you're talking this about this popcorn reading, like yeah. I can and I was probably one of these kids. If someone messed up, that's hilarious. You know, yeah. like, you know, and that's I mean, so but that happens everywhere. So it's part of the trick then knowing like, yeah, maybe you will mess up and people are going to laugh. But you know, like that, that's just happens when I, yeah. When I was talking about like that graduated uh, ladder, mm-hmm. you, know, you go from small yeah. to big, uh, that that's on the big end, mm-hmm. right? The, the person outwardly ridiculing you because that's the greatest fear of anxiety is that people are going to ridicule you. So, yeah, I think in, in some respects it's probably useful to be able to develop a, thick skin because the world will have jerks in it. The world will have people who can criticize you. But in terms of like, yeah, let's just allow this behavior right now because it's probably good for them in the long run. Probably not. Um, One of the things that I've seen schools do too is stuff related to anti-bullying. And the best anti-bullying curricula, the best anti-bullying programs aren't programs that say don't bully don't be a jerk. They're programs that say, here's how we can make kids feel welcome. Uh, You're going to get a lot more groundwork if you teach kids how to be kind, teach kids how to be open, teach kids how to be accepting and respectful of each other than you are telling them not to be jerks. To stop a behavior. Exactly. It's easier to encourage a behavior than to stop one. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Hey. Yeah. Hey, and look at that. Hey, that that keys in well with this anxiety stuff, too, uh-huh, because, right. again, we're not stopping behaviors. We're replacing behaviors. Mm-hmm. Man, Paul, this has just been um, it's uh, thank you. I have one last question for sure, you. Then. What's, what's in your car right now? What's in my car right now? Yeah. Um, In the trunk of my car, I have, uh, I think, four of those big Ikea tarp bags that I use for my groceries. I've also got an insulated bag that I use for my cold groceries. I do a lot of grocery shopping and uh, in in true in true fashion of, of maybe who I am, I prefer to take as few trips from the car to the house as possible. And those Ikea bags can hold a lot of food. Uh, so I can minimize my footwork if I load them up to be 600 pounds. Um, and then I think also admittedly uh, behind the driver's seat, I do have a significant amount of garbage that I do need to bag up and throw away. I'll, I'll come help you with it right now. Since you've done me such a favor being on this podcast, Paul Workman, it has been really nice to talk to you. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a good time. Okay, have a good day. Yeah, you too. All right, bye. Bye. Man, I could have talked to Paul all day. What a wonderful amount of information. Thank you, Paul. Paul Workman is a behavioral health therapist in Minong, Wisconsin. If you'd like to learn more about North Lakes Community Clinic's school-based behavioral health program, visit our website at nlccwi.org. There will also be a link in the episode notes. North Lakes Community Clinic is a community health center with clinics located throughout the northern third of Wisconsin. Our vision is healthy, prosperous, engaged communities where everyone thrives. My name is Jeremy Oswald, and I'm a marketing and communications specialist at North Lakes. 
Give the North Lakes podcast a review on whichever platform you are enjoying this on. It helps other people find the show. We'll be adding new episodes monthly, so keep your eyes open and thank you for listening.